Let's try this again. Welcome in to Wednesday Night Bible Study here on the channel Tim Hatch Live on YouTube or Rumble now. And I'm so glad that you're here. Click that like button, the subscribe button, the notification bell. Get notified on your smartphone every time we go live. We are in part 30 of the Deep Dive Bible Study. Kings of Compromise looking at the kings of ancient Israel. But unfortunately now, only the kings of Judah. Because as we talked about last week, right? Last week, the nation or the half kingdom, half nation of Israel to the north, the 10 tribes that followed Jeroboam into apostasy are no more. Assyria has come in and taken them captive and overwhelmed them and intermingled them and interbred them with the peoples of foreign nations. So the northern kingdom is gone. The kingdom has been wiped out. The southern kingdom remains. And that brings us to a guy named Hezekiah. And we're going to go through this chapter um, two chapters, actually, as we discuss overcoming the enemy's psychological warfare. And I can't tell you how excited I am to get to this content today, because I don't know if you're aware that there is such a thing as spiritual psychological warfare. Sounds like a redundant phrase, but it's not. Psychological warfare is real in the Christian life. You need to be aware of it. You need to be def on defense against it. And more importantly, you need to be on offense in the midst of it. We're going to look at what it looks like in the life of Hezekiah. We're going to look at how to get over it and fight through it and what God can do through you and for you in spite of it. But you got to realize you're in it. Let's do it. Kings of Compromise. So when I talk about psychological warfare, and that is, again, the content today of this talk, what do I mean by psychological warfare? Well, let's give a definition that I found online and take it for what, it, what it's worth that it's online. Psychological warfare is the strategic use of communication and propaganda techniques to influence the thoughts, emotions, attitudes, and behaviors of a target audience, often with the aim of achieving a particular objective. Now, we know the objective of the enemy. Jesus talks about that in the book of John. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But did you ever think about this? that before the devil can steal from you or the enemy, as I believe he has a host of demons and fallen angels that attack us, um, before he can steal with you, he has to convince you to participate because he can't touch your things. I know some people are under the impression that he can't, but he can't. He can't touch God's people's things. But he can psychologically convince you of things that lead to his stealing of, of the things God wants you to have, God has given you. And I'm not talking necessarily about possessions as much as I'm talking about peace, fullness, joy, hope, right? These are things that God wants to give you and has given you in Christ Jesus, but the enemy is out to steal them so that he can kill you in the spiritual realm and destroy you. But it begins with strategic communication from the enemy. I know God speaks all the time, so does the enemy, and we need to be aware of it. Let's go through the text. Picking up the story now in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. And don't get worked up about Nehushtan. It just means a bronze serpent. Let's talk about, let's talk about Hezekiah because this is a godly king and he is the son of Ahaz. And we talked about this. You have godly king Jotham giving, having a son named Ahaz, who's a wicked king. And then Ahaz, a wicked king, has a son named Hezekiah, who is a godly king. Generational pendulum swings in terms of righteousness on the throne of Judah. 
And the scriptures align the beginning of his reign with the third year of Hosea, king of Israel, who will be the last king of Israel, who will be fallen to the king of um, Assyria. A couple of things that the scripture wants us to note about Hezekiah. He reigned a long time. He reigned 29 years. Uh, We also are told his parents, uh, and then we're also told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Not his father Ahaz, his great, 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 and I don't know how many greats I got to say, but father, uh, grandfather David did. And he did in verse four what so many kings, even righteous kings, failed to do before him. He removed what? The high places. He broke the pillars down, cut down the Asherah. So, you know, Israel was spreading around just like the North, Judah was spreading around just like the Northern Kingdom of Israel was spreading around, setting up their own idols to seek God, how they wanted to be, how they wanted to seek him. It was, you know, religion in my terms. And Hezekiah is the first king in Judah who tears these things down. The very idols that Solomon set up centuries before Hezekiah tears down. And then this last phrase, which I find highly ironic. Check this out. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days, the people of Israel were making offerings to it. Do you know what this is called? This is called worshiping, worshiping the past. And so many churches, okay, and Christians are doing it. This, the, the bronze serpent was a symbol of deliverance. If you remember, they were supposed to, in Numbers 22, look to the bronze serpent, a picture of Christ, which Moses made to deliver them from the poisonous bites of the serpents that God had sent against them. This is all in numbers while they were wandering through the wilderness. And, and yet that object that saved them in the past, the object that, that God used in the past became an object of worship in the present. Doesn't that happen today in many a Christian churches where we start to worship the past, worship the traditions, worship the old school things that we experienced when we were young or maybe our parents experienced and we don't embrace just the person of Jesus, the, the spirit of God. We're tied to things from the old days. It could be a style of worship in your church. It could be... Um, certain practices from just human traditions that people just cannot let go of. It could be things that God did in your life years ago through someone. You idolize that person. You can't even imagine having anyone else in your life like that person. Could be an old pastor. Could be an old leader. Somebody that you think, that's it. That's, that was the end of God working for me. Now all pastors are going to be measured. All leaders are going to be measured against that person. Like this is spiritual idolatry. It's, it's really religious idolatry. And yes, religion can become an idol, an idol just as much as money and fortune and fame and popularity and people and children and all those things can become an idol. Good things, even in the church, can become an idol, as we see case in point amongst the people of Israel. Hezekiah has to literally destroy something that had healed them in the past, but had held them back in their present. I wonder if there's something in your life right now. You need to break that idol. You need to break away. I remember one of the, uh, a lady coming to our church many years ago, and you know I just wasn't a good pastor in her opinion. All, the, her old pastor, the pastor that she got saved under, it was a great was a man of God. Heard God was the best pastor since. Moses. And I just wasn't ever going to be up to snuff for that, for that lady. And, you know, it, what, what it really was, was she just idolized that guy in her past when she was young in the faith. And sometimes we, we forget this, that distance, you know, makes us kind of look with rose colored glasses on something, especially the, the distance in time. You look back in your younger days and you think, oh, I wish I could go back. Yeah, but you were struggling with things in your younger days that you just got over. That's why they seem so much easier. And right now you're struggling with things that you're not yet over. And so it seems harder. And so you, you, you look with affection on the past, which you really didn't like at the time. And sometimes we do that in the church. Many times we do that in the church with music styles. Oh, the drums came in. It was a big to-do in the Christian church. I remember those battles. And then lights came in and then screen preaching came to the church and everybody's like, I don't like that. I want a church where the pastor is present. Yeah, but do you ever talk to the pastor? No, but I want him to be in the building. You're just holding on to an old way of church. You're just holding on to an old style. 
It's not actually the Lord you're holding on to. It's the form of religious faith that you're holding on to. And that's what Hezekiah does here. He destroys this form of religious faith and literally turns the eyes of God's people back onto the Lord. So consequently, verse 5 says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him. But look at this next phrase, nor among those who were what? Before him. Better than who? Solomon? Better than David? Better than maybe, you know, let's talk about the kings of Judah. So maybe you can say after Solomon because that's when the kingdom divided. But this is a, do not miss how high on a pedestal the scriptures put Hezekiah. This is a mighty man of God. Verse six, he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses and the Lord was with him wherever he went. Do you know what obedience does for us? It keeps the Lord close to us. When we honor the Lord above all things in our lives, he stays near. He stays near. It says this, he prospered. Um, And then this sentence, which is going to set us up for the next kind of uh, scene in the text. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. We're going to talk about what that looks like in just a moment. Verse 8, he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and his territory from watchtower to fortified city. This is a mighty man of God. He's taking back the, the cities of the Philistines. David had thoroughly defeated them, but their sins of Israel and Judah had let the Philistines start to reclaim territory. Here comes Hezekiah in the spirit of David, obedient, wholehearted, following of God and God gives him success and spiritual victory in his life. Never underestimate the power that comes to your spiritual life when you are obedient to the Lord. That is what Hezekiah uh, exhibits for us in this passage. Now, the scene's going to shift and remind us of what just took place in chapter 17, verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 9. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Allah, king of Israel. So that's the northern kingdom. And this is going to be a rehearsal of what we saw last chapter. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. So what is the scripture asking us to do? See that, remember that this is while Hezekiah is king. All right, so he became king at 25. So he's 29 and he's watching for three years. He's watching for three years a besieging of the city. Now, this is a dark time. In ancient warfare uh, uh, strategy, you would surround a city. You would not let food come in or go out. People would literally starve. They would become emaciated. They would even turn into cannibals. They would even eat. Uh, there's a passage we talked about in 2 Kings chapter 5 where they were eating the, 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 the uh, excrement of doves. They were eating donkey's heads. So this, is, so this is what's happening for three years. And Hezekiah... In the south, to Ju- in Judah, to the south, is seeing this for with his own eyes. He's got a front row seat at what Assyria is able to do to Samaria, to the northern kingdom. Uh, in the sixth year of Hezekiah, so now he's 31, which was the ninth year of King uh, Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. It says the king of Assyria carried the Israelite, Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of, Me- of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Now, the scripture is going to make sure that we understand that this is not because of Assyria's strength. No, 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 no. This is because of the Lord's word. The breaking of the covenant is what caused Israel's downfall. It was not the strength of Assyria. And we're going to see in a moment that Assyria really was not the, the, the person, the one doing this to Israel. And that's going to be very interesting if you just stay with me in just a moment. Verse 13 says this in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Okay, now... The rubber hits the road because Hezekiah watched for three years as uh, the king of Assyria invaded, besieged, and destroyed Samaria and took their people captive. And now he's coming against the, the scripture says the fortified cities. These are the military outposts of Judah and Assyria is just boom, boom, boom. They're falling like flies. And Hezekiah is seeing this. 
Now, let's go to a parallel account first in 2 Chronicles 32, because it's going to show you Hezekiah's first response. Remember, he's a godly king, like David, none after him, none before him, one of the best, if not the best king of Judah of all time. Here is what he does at first when he sees Assyria coming against him. In verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 32, he set to work re resolutely and built up the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it outside uh, it, outside the, that wall, he built another wall. He strengthened the Milo in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. He became, I'm sorry, and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the city, at the gate of the city, and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the whores that are that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an army of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Yes. Amen. Wow. Awesome word. Okay. So at first you see Hezekiah says, nope. And, and this is what the text was talking about earlier when it said that he rebelled back in uh, verse, uh, where was that? When it says that he rebelled, oh yeah, verse seven of second, uh, second Kings 18, he rebelled against the kingdom of Assyria. How? By trusting in the Lord and telling the people of God to be confident in the Lord. However, verse nine Right after this, I don't have it on the screen. You're just going to take my word for it. Right after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, besieged Lachish uh, with his forces and sent servants to Jerusalem to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and began speaking to them. Now, Lachish is important because it's 40 miles outside of Jerusalem. Back to 2 Kings so we can get this picture because it tells us this in detail in verse 14. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you pose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. So he gets the money out of God's house, the temple, and the money out of his house because he now, look at this, unfortunately, repents from trusting in God and starts to trust in the king of Assyria because the king of Assyria starts to take his uh, military outpost. Now, before we beat up on Hezekiah and we say, I can't believe it. Here's a strong, mighty man of God. He's tearing down the high places. He's destroying the bronze serpent that the people were worshiping from Moses today. This is a mighty man of God. That the scripture is very clear. He's a, he's a powerful man. But yet here he is now saying to the king of Syria, I've done wrong. He's repenting from his righteousness. He's repenting from doing, trusting God. How, how could you fall so far from this? And, and this was the same technique that his father Ahaz also took with the king of Assyria. He wanted to make an alliance with him. Again, again, this is, I think, two kings removed from the king that Ahaz dealt with in Assyria. Um, sometimes we can judge others like this and say, why is he doing that? But then it happens to us, <laughs> right? This is exactly what you see in Hezekiah. Now, I want to give you some maps to detail why Hezekiah has this sudden, you know, backtrack, this sudden compromise. He's, he falls. This is a godly king who starts off godly. And then he falls away for, for a season. I want to make sure you understand that for a season. Okay, a couple things. Let's put a map up. This is Israel and Judah, the divided kingdoms. And the reason why I want to show you that is because Israel was far bigger than Judah, at least territorially. So Assyria has just destroyed Israel. They took the bigger piece of the pie, if you will. Judah is much smaller. It's only two tribes. Might have had a better military at this point, but it's much smaller. And Israel is now decimated. It is gone. No longer does it stand. Assyria has won. Now look to the, to the right on the map because this is going to show you something that is very important. When the king of Assyria came in against um, uh, Judah to the south, they came through Samaria into the north. They took Joppa. They invaded Libna. They invaded Lachish. Okay, so look at where Lachish is. It's to the southwest of Jerusalem. So this territory up to the north Gone. That's already in the hands of Assyria. Now Assyria is extending its territory around to the southwest of Jerusalem. This is 40 miles, 40 miles away uh, from Jerusalem is Lachish. And you see the enemy. Look to the right. What do you see over here? You see the Dead Sea. You see the Jordan River. These are not safe places to be when you are being invaded. Um, Hezekiah is between a rock and a wet place. The rock is Assyria. The wet place is the Dead Sea. He is surrounded. 
and it doesn't look good. So now you can kind of understand why Hezekiah has this moment of weakness. And he says, whoa, I better backtrack on my stance, take a new political uh, uh, shift here and appease the king of Assyria. So he compromises. Good king had a bad season. Hey, if you're a Christian and you've had a bad season, <laughs> many of God's best people have been there. Uh, Hezekiah has been there. David has been there. Solomon has been there. Moses has been there. Abraham has been there. Lot was there. Peter was there. I mean, you can't name a biblical hero outside of Jesus and not find that they went through a, a lull in belief, a lull in faith, and they struggled at times. So take heart. The Bible is written to you or for you about them so that you can relate and you can not lose hope when you you know, kind of sag in your faith. Okay, verse 16, moving on. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave to the king of Assyria. So these, these are the kings that he, these are the doors of the temple that Hezekiah himself had uh, reframed and repaired. And now he takes the gold from those doors. He gives them to the king of Assyria and the king of Assyria sent Tartan, the Rabsaris and Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They went up, uh, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they had called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joab, the, Ash, the son of Ashaph, the recorder. So this is going to begin what I'm going to refer to as the psychological warfare of the enemy. And what we're going to see from a guy named Rabshakeh, don't miss this name, Rabshakeh, whose name I think it means bearer of the cup. Um, he is going to be the minister of propaganda on behalf of Assyria into Hezekiah's ear and into the ear of the people of Judah, Jerusalem. He is going to speak words of discouragement. He is going to try to discourage and defeat Israel, uh, Judah spiritually, mentally, and emotionally so that they can basically wipe them out physically. Let's take a look-see at how all this goes down. Verse 19, and Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, now notice that, say, I want a message delivered. And ladies and gentlemen, the devil wants to deliver messages to you. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Now, he's talking about Hezekiah's words that he told the people, be courageous and stand strong. And so he's already heard. This is important because he's a spy. He's a good spy. He's already heard the words that Hezekiah has told the nation of Judah. And so now he's attacking the words that Hezekiah has spoken. And I believe this. Let me just take a side point here that the devil comes and attacks what the pastor tells you on Sunday on Sunday afternoon. He comes right in after you've heard the word of God on Sunday to attack what you heard on Sunday and to get you discouraged and despairing again. So he comes in and this is what the enemy has done since the Garden of Eden. He hears the word of God and then he twists it. He distorts it. He undermines it in your ears. So he says, do you think that mere words of strategy and power for war? Uh, do you think that mere words are strategy and powerful war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of staff, which shall pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, uh, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall not worship before the altar, uh, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now notice what he does. This is incredible. Hezekiah brought a purity of faith to the people. Hezekiah brought a purity of obedience to the people, a centrality. He centered on, on now let me put this in Christian terms. He centered the people on Jesus and, and worship of God through Jesus alone. That's the New Testament equivalent. I know it's the temple for Hezekiah, but it's Jesus for us. The enemy's first attempt at psychological warfare is to suggest that just Jesus isn't enough. You need Jesus plus good works. You need Jesus plus, you know, some spiritual transcendental meditation. You need Jesus plus your own efforts. You need Jesus plus whatever. And, and Hezekiah is attacked by the enemy in front of his people for doing what is right. Uh, pastors will get this. Leaders will get this. You can speak the truth of the word of God and you will be attacked by the enemy that the very words that you spoke, which are true, are actually false. Now, if you watched The Deep End last night, I talked about the church the world wants 
and the church the world needs and how you can only have one. There's a, there only one's going to survive, and that is the church the world needs, a church that is devout to, uh, devoted to Christ, um, that is disciplined in its presentation of the gospel, that is not going to abdicate or compromise with the ideologies of the world. And what you see here is Hezekiah is being tempted in the very same things as modern churches in America are today. Abdicate. Listen to the lies of the enemy. Compromise. You know, make deals with the culture and you will survive. That is exactly the psychological warfare that Hezekiah is experiencing right here in 2 Kings 18. Verse 23 says this, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to put on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, uh, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, this is incredibly important. Don't miss this. Oh, oh, this is good. This is really good. First, there's so many falsehoods, but there's also some truth. And this is a, this is a psychological warfare. The devil takes truth and he mixes it with falsehoods and he, and he creates this, this deadly concoction that can deceive so many people. Uh, he knows their military size. That's true. He knows that they don't have enough men to put on the horses that Assyria is offering him. He's trying to get a, an alliance here made with Assyria and Hezekiah. He knows about Hezekiah's spiritual reforms, and he's undermining all that. And then the coup d'etat is verse 25. He says, by the way, moreover, it is, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place? In other words, the Lord has sent me to do this. Okay, I'm going to blow your mind. Are you ready? That's true. That's true. The Lord has sent Assyria up against Judah and the Lord sent Assyria to wipe out Israel. We already discussed that. But Isaiah himself says this. And we have to interpret scripture with scripture. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Isaiah, while Assyria is destroying Israel to the north, he says this, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in, my hand, in their hands is my fury. And later in that verse, he says, I'm sending them against my people. This is my wrath. I'm going to use Assyria to take them down. So, so what Rabshakeh says here is a mixture of truth and half-truth. And the truth is this, that God had sent Assyria to, to wipe out Israel and had sent Assyria or allowed Assyria to go up against Judah to discipline them, but not to destroy them. That is not going to happen at this point. This is not the end of Judah. They've got about 100 years left. And what you have to understand is that, yes, God can use foreign godless kings to accomplish his purposes, to refine the church, to refine his people. Uh, God can use our, foreign, our leaders that are spiritually foreign to us. He can use presidents that we think are crazy and insane and hedonist and out of touch with the Bible and totally cynical. He can use anyone he chooses, but he uses them to refine and purify his church. So what Rabshakeh here says is, appropriate, is actually um, quite true. Not totally true, but very true. Verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, the, and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, please <clears throat> speak to your servants in Ara Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, that would be Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you? And not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. In other words, no, I'm going to say it. I am going to um, enact psychological warfare on your people, whether you like it or not. And the devil does not ask permission to attack, uh, to attack you. He is from your pastor. He's going to attack you no matter what. And then verse 32, it says this, Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and the city will not be given in the hand of, king Assyria, of, of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Okay, psychological warfare of the devil right here, of the enemy. I can give you what God has failed to give you. This idea of having your own vine and fig tree, this idea of having your own cistern, these were the promises that God made to Israel when they were in Egypt, that he would give them in the promised land. And they did get it in the promised land. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 4, which we talked about at the 
apex of Solomon's leadership. It says Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan all the way to the north to the Beersheba all the way to the south. Every man under his vine and fig tree. We literally covered that. So they did have that in Solomon, but it has been lost. The prosperity that Solomon provided in righteousness has been lost because of the unrighteousness of the kings of the nation. And now the devil comes in and he starts to say, I can give you what your, lead, your godly leaders, your God-given leaders have failed to give you. All right, psychological warfare 101 is this. Don't miss it. The enemy tempts us to sin. We sin. We deal with the consequences of sin. Then the enemy comes and says, see what God did to you? See what God isn't giving you? See how he has taken so much from you? I can give you what you lost. And so that's how he gets so many people into the trap of addiction, into the trap of the lust of the flesh, into adultery, into endless greed that's never satisfied or satiated. It is an endless trap the enemy puts on our lives. And it is all started, it all, it all is preceded by the enemy getting us to sin and lose our good things in the first place because when we sin, we, we compromise the things that God wants to give us and and provide for us. So this is an amazing picture of psychological warfare in the spiritual realm. Let's go on because it gets better. It says, and do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Uh, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shivaram, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their hands out of my hand? Let the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. This is exactly what's happening in our world, in the Christian church right now. The reason why churches are compromising their convictions right now is because they're looking at the world way more than they're looking at Christ. And if you fix your eyes on this world and this culture, you will compromise. If you do not root yourself in the word of God, you will compromise. Um, and this is exactly what was happening and, and is happening today in our generation. Israel looked to Assyria, Israel looked to Syria, Israel looked to Pharaoh in Egypt and made compromises and, and then just, that's the way of the world. And now Assyria takes that and says, look at what happened to them. You don't want what happened to them to happen to you. Make a deal with me. Come on, you need to compromise something. You can't go too far with this thing. You can't be too Christian. You can't be too dedicated to because if you do... You're going to be out of step with the culture. You know, you're not going to make the money you need to make. You're not going to have the opportunities you need. You're not going to, your kids are going to suffer. Your parents are going to, you're, whatever it is. This is the psychological warfare the enemy wants to put on you. Don't trust the Bible. It's old. It's outdated. And if you listen to certain presidents and certain commentators on society, you will be driven into compromise because you have set your eyes on the things of this world instead of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens here in this chapter. This is why you get churches that the world wants and not churches that the world needs. Moving on, verse 36. But the people were silent. This is so good and so helpful. The people were silent and answered him not a word for the king's command was do not answer him. I love that about Hezekiah. You know what Hezekiah does here? Something that too many Christians, not enough Christians do. Be quiet at times. Don't get into shouting matches with non-believers. Don't try to defend yourself to everybody. You don't need to. Stay still. Be quiet. Don't respond. You don't need to get into this back and forth with the enemy. Verse 37, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shep, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Ashaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So they don't tell, they don't say anything to Rabshakeh, but they come in and tell Hezekiah. And now we turn to chapter 19. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now, Hezekiah is going to do something here that I'm going to tell you right now, flat out, is the answer to the psychological warfare that is coming against you from the enemy. He goes to church. He goes to the house of the Lord. Now, the good news is in the New Testament, you do not need to physically go to a building to experience what Hezekiah does, but it absolutely does help. So you've got to have a local church you go to. But in the theology of the New Testament, the New Covenant, we are the temple of the Lord. So we can experience and, and seek the Lord right where we are. We can get into our prayer closets, as Jesus said, and we can seek him on our own. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have church. We must have a church, as we're going to see exemplified here in this text a little bit later. 
But Hezekiah gets alone with God. And verse 2, it says this. He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. So Hezekiah does what we all need to do. We need to pray. We need to seek God's leaders, God's prophets. God's pastors. This is why God gives you pastors and elders, people who are spiritual, strong in the faith, and they can speak to you. And Hezekiah's ministry uh, leadership is right in line at the same time as Isaiah's leadership. So verse 7 says this, It may be that the Lord our God heard the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servant, the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. There's the promise. Now, Isaiah, again, is a mighty man of God. And what you have to understand about um, Isaiah, and this is a good word, for anyone who wants to be involved in ministry, in order to be effective in your ministry, you have to experience some personal misery. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. <laughs> and I know that is not comforting, but it will be if you just give me a second. Um, you, uh, as Isaiah is called into ministry in the year King Uzziah died. Remember that? If we go to, uh, let me go to the Bible cam here on Logos. Chapter six of Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim and they, and they sang and they flew above the Lord and they said, holy, holy, holy. And the foundation shook and the threshold shook. And I said, woe is me. And then the seraphims flew to him and purified his sins, touched my mouth. And then the Lord said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Okay. This was his call, but his call happened in the year that King Uzziah died. And King Uzziah was a righteous military genius. And then if you remember, he has a son who's mm, Jotham. He's all right. Jotham has a son named Ahaz. Ahaz is a disgrace. Okay. And now you have a righteous king on the throne again. So I have to imagine that for Isaiah, seeing Uzziah die had to be a very terrible moment. Here's a righteous king now dead. Because again, he disobeyed the Lord, burned and says in the temple. Now he's got to suffer through the kingdom of Ahaz. And now God's given uh, Hezekiah. He's been through some misery. Now he's got a ministry. Your misery produces your ministry. So he can now encourage King Hezekiah because he has learned that God is sovereign. He reigns. He rules. He is high and lifted up just as he saw him in the temple. He is above he is above the leaders that you put your faith in. He's above King Uzziah in Isaiah's eyes. So Hezekiah, the God that I have come to know through my misery can help you. He has given me this misery so that I can give you my ministry to help lift you up in the midst of your misery. Amen, somebody. That's a good preacher right there. <laughs> Verse 8. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So right away, look at how quickly the answers come for King Hezekiah. It's not over yet, though. Now the king heard concerning Turka, Turhaka, king of Cush. Behold, he has set out to fight against you. That's the king of Assyria he's fighting against. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you deceive, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. The enemy doesn't give up just because he has a setback. I think we, we think, okay, we prayed and we got a mild answer. And so now we don't have to pray anymore. No, no, no. The enemy's going to come back in. It's like a wave of the sea. It, it comes in, it slaps the shore. It, it goes back. You think it's all over. Nope. There's another wave coming. That's spiritual warfare. That's psychological warfare for every Christian. And so there's a quick, small answer to Hezekiah's need, but there's coming an even bigger force of evil against him. You got to be aware of this or you're going to be sitting, sitting duck for the enemy. The enemy does not give up. He does not just stop. He does not just lay up. He comes at you in waves and in stronger waves and in stronger waves. You have got to be prayed up and spiritually strong in the Lord. Take up the whole armor of God, Paul says, because the battle is real. Verse 11. 
Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoted them to destruction. Now notice that he's moved on from the king of Assyria to the kings of Assyria. So I know that our king presently has had a setback, but there's a bunch of kings in Assyria's history that have won a lot of land and a lot of wars. And, and so you're messing with a lineage of kings. And shall you be delivered, he says. Verse 12, have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gazan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of blah, 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 blah. Hezekiah received the letter, verse 14, from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And I love this. So important. Please don't skip verse 14. You should underline it in your Bible. You should circle it. You should put some exclamation points above it. Do you know why? Here's why. What was Hezekiah doing with the temple beforehand, before this? Remember, remember that he was ransacking the temple's gold and giving it to the king of Assyria to buy him off. The last time Hezekiah went to the temple was to use the temple to satiate the flesh, to satiate the, the spiritual enemy. Now he goes to the temple to seek God. There are two ways to come to church. One way, you seek what God can do for you. The second way, you seek God. Period. Please do the second one. Because the church and the Lord and his house do not exist just to save you from your problems. They exist to bring you back to the Lord, to the Father. That's why Jesus came. So many Christians are praying for God to do certain things, solve problems in their life, but they're not seeking to know God. Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, he says, this is, this is eternal life, that they may know me. They may know the Father. They may know God. That's eternal life. If you know, and that is have an intimate knowledge of the Lord, then no problem in life will be able to overwhelm you because you know he is with you. He'll never forsake you, never leave you. So Hezekiah goes back to the temple, and this time, instead of using the temple, he seeks God in the temple. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Same kind of vision that Isaiah saw, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Parallel vision of Isaiah here. He saw the Lord with the cherubim and the seraphim. And now um, Hezekiah is referring to the same kind of presentation because the ministry of Isaiah ministered to the misery of Hezekiah. So he says, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, uh, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. I love the fact also that he took the letter, this is, this is a side point, but this is important because he took the letter that he had received from the enemy and he spread it out before the Lord. You need to just kind of spread out your problems. You need to spread out the messages that the enemy has put into your mind. You need to, sometimes you can take a pen and you can just write out, Lord, the enemy is telling me this. Type it out. Lord, I am feeling like this. Do you ever do that with the Lord? Do you ever have just an honest, open conversation about what's really going on up here or in here? I think we need to do that a lot more often than we do because some of us just internalize things, but we never get them out on paper and never just say, okay, God, let me just spread this out before you so that you and I can take this on together and I know exactly what I need to be praying over. It's an important principle for spiritual warfare. Verse 17, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Hezekiah, was he doing full-on worship? By the way, <coughs> excuse me, he is also doing what Solomon told Israel to do, if you remember, in 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, verse 8, when, when Solomon brings the temple of the, the ark into the temple, remember that he gives 12, uh, seven instructions on how to pray in the temple. And one of those instructions is, and we talked about this many, many episodes ago, he says, if there's famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locust, caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each 
whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days they live in the land that you gave your father. So Hezekiah is doing exactly what Solomon prescribed for the kings of Israel. If you are besieged by an enemy at the gates and they come and pray, and you come and pray to God, he will hear you. I've set that up for you. And, and Solomon, remember I said that in that episode, that Solomon is a picture of Jesus who has made your path to God clean, wide open. Your conversation with God is wide open because of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has cleansed you of all sin, and he has made, justified you before the Lord, and the Lord hears your prayer. And so take advantage of it. When the enemy comes against you, remember that you have an open window to heaven to call on God and to seek him in the midst of your troubles, trials, and tribulations. And we see a case in point here in verse 20. It says, Then Isaiah, son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. The prayer is heard. Okay, great. Prayer is heard. Now what? Well, Isaiah breaks out into song. <laughs> and that is when you know the battle's won. You know, when God's people start singing, the battle's won. And so that's why you see in this, in this passage in your Bibles, you'll see it like kind of indented like that because it's trying to tell you this is more than just biblical text now. This is a song of worship. It's a prophecy and a song at the same time. Uh, Miriam sang at the Red Sea after the Lord swallowed the Pharaoh's army. Uh, some people believe, and I do as well, that the first chapter of the Bible is a song with repetition, rhyme, and meter. And God is singing creation into existence. Uh, remember that um, Jehoshaphat, was surrounded by enemies, and the Lord said, send the singers into the battle first. They will fight this battle with singing. Singing is important to God's people. Verse 21, this is the word that the Lord has spoken. And I'm just going to read the whole song, and then we're just going to kind of close out the through the text uh, section of this talk. But it says, she despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. In other words, you've come against my people, Assyria, and you are not going to win. It says this, By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said with many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and, dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And God makes no bones about it. Everything that you've done so far, King of Assyria, I've allowed and I have used to humble nations. But now you're coming against my people. Now you're coming against my heart, Jerusalem. And I'm going to take you and I'm going to send you back the way you came. You think you're in charge, you're not. Ladies and gentlemen, this might be good news for you. Uh, Joe Biden thinks he's in charge. He's not. <laughs> Your senator thinks they're in charge. They're not. God is in charge. This is one of the most powerful moments in the Bible that proclaims God's sovereignty over the nations. He has absolute, absolute authority. Nothing is out of his domain. Nothing is out of his purview. He sees all and he's in charge of all. Verse 29, as we are starting to close out this chapter. And this shall be a sign for you. This year, you're going to eat what grows of itself. And the second year, what springs from the same. And the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. In other words, this guy's going to be gone in time for you to plant a new harvest. So you're going to eat today because he's besieging you, but he's going to be gone. And by the third year, you're going to be able to plant and sow and reap. And your economy will, come, will bounce back. And verse 30, it says this. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. By the way, that's a hint of the exile. Just letting you know, there's a lot more story here for Judah. Verse 32, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way, he came by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And verse 35 to 37, And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. 
Uh, I'm sorry, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Remember that name? Yep, that Nineveh, Jonah's Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nikrosh, his god, Adramalek and Sharizer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. That's in modern-day Turkey. And Ashardon, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, all you want to see here, because I'm kind of squishing all this down so I can get the episode completed, is this. It's like nothing for God to do this. He sends an angel and 185,000 soldiers are dead. And what you are being begged to see here in the text is what you feel overwhelmed by right now, what you feel beyond hope about right now, do you understand that it is a tiny thing in the eyes of God that he can solve that problem like that? He is, go- he is all-powerful. He is beyond your imagination. And he can act quickly and swiftly. Make no mistake. Let's look at the trajectory of Hezekiah's life, okay? He watched for three years, had a front row seat for three years, okay? Three years ago, we were in the throes of COVID. That's how long, just to give you perspective. Hezekiah watches for three years as Samaria is besieged and the northern uh, nation of Israel is decimated and destroyed and dragged off into captivity. And then he sees Assyria circle around, remember the map, down to the southwest and is now entrapping him against the Dead Sea. And in one night, <laughs> just, I, you got to love the Lord. In one night, what he obsessed about for three plus years, it's over. What are you obsessing about, praying about, fasting about, thinking about, and will never change because it's still hovering over your heart, hovering over your head, uh, coming and chasing up behind you, and God can fix it like that. Don't stop praying. Don't start laying it out. Don't start going to church. Don't start calling other people in to worship and pray with you. That's what Hezekiah does with his scribes and his messengers. We need community. We need prophecy. We need the Bible. We need the word. We need worship. We need all those things regularly in our lives because you never know when your breakthrough will happen, but it will happen. And when it happens, you'll be like, why did I wrestle with that for so long? Why did I struggle with that for so long? God was able. Let's tap into truth. A couple things I want to talk about today to close out this episode is this. Number one, even Christians who do the right thing will face serious tests in life. And that is Hezekiah's first few years as king. He was reforming the nation. He was tearing down the high places. He was restoring pure worship, the pure Passover. Uh, Chronicles talks about how he celebrated the Passover like no one else before him or after him. And yet... God allows the king of Assyria to come and just basically torment his life for three years. Um, Even Christians who do the right thing will face serious tests in life. You have to see it. I got this picture for you. You're going to be surrounded by thoughts constantly from the enemy. Even as you seek God, the enemy, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, just this picture is in my mind, right? That you're just going to always have this spiritual psyop going on. Now, remember what the definition of psyop is. I want to put this back up on the screen. The strategic use of communication and propaganda techniques to influence the thoughts, emotions, attitudes, and behaviors of a target audience. What is the enemy trying to do? He is trying to give propaganda agents techniques false messages or diluted truth or half truth or false, you know, a mixture of uh, falsehood and truth to influence your thoughts, your emotions, your attitude, your behavior. He wants that is the spiritual psyop that you are facing right now. I've got a couple of examples I want to put put up on the screen, but they are by no means an exhaustive list. But here's some spiritual psyop examples. The enemy is saying, God will not forgive you for this. You need to compromise here in this area if you want to get ahead. You won't blank or you can't blank. God doesn't love you. More money is the answer. Hey, if it feels good to you, if it feels true, it can't be wrong. The Bible is full of contradictions. Don't you know there's contradictions all over the place? You don't want to look foolish believing that old book, do you? These are, again, not an exhaustive list, but maybe just to spur some of your thinking to say, man, what am I listening to? That's a spiritual psyop right now. It's a false messenger. It's a rabsheka on the wall trying to tell me that God is not able to save me, deliver me, protect me, heal me, change me, transform me. Man, 
Let's be aware of the spiritual side, but let's remember what the scripture talks about. It's a battle for the mind. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says, You were taught in him as the truth that is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. What does Peter say? 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for actions. In other words, you cannot, for action, you cannot not cultivate a mind for Christ here. You've got to prepare your mind. How do I do that, Pastor? Prayer, meditation on the word, time in the word, listening to sermons, listening to Bible content like this, liking and subscribing, (laughs) hitting that subscribe button. There you go. Prepare your mind for action so that you're aware of what's going on around you. And then in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't follow your heart and your lusts. Seek God in your heart, in your mind. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 says, the natural person does not accept things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. What do I mean by the mind of Christ? What does that mean? Well, the mind of Christ is this. I know the Father intimately. That's what Jesus exhibited with his mind constantly. He, th- because he knew the Father, he knew who he was, okay? Uh, the mind of Christ is serving others. The mind of Christ is humble estate before the Lord. The mind of Christ is set on things above, is set on the mission of Jesus, is not taken uh, captive by the deceptions or the half-truths of the devil because the mind of Christ is focused on the word of the Lord, When Jesus is tempted by the devil and the spiritual psyops come in, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, what is he doing? What is he doing? He's saying, you know, you got to watch out for yourself. You got to prove yourself. You got to show people that you're really who you say you are. And Jesus rebukes him and corrects him with the word again and again and again. That's the mind of Christ. Put the Bible, the scriptures in the mind so that the scriptures can be lived in your body. Now, Expect the taunts of the enemy and unbelievers when you try to do this. (laughs) Okay. Hezekiah was doing what is right and the enemy came in and taunted him about it. But you have to understand that a taunt is just a call to trust in something other than God. That's all the taunt is. When your spiritual enemy or unbelievers make fun of you for being a Christian and trusting God and tithing and serving and doing the things that Christians do, please understand that all they're really doing is trying to get you to trust something or someone other than God. Money can taunt us out of giving God the first. Society can taunt us out of living according to Christian conviction. Friends and family can taunt us away from church involvement and true commitment to God. The news media can taunt us away from trusting God and taunt us into fear. And all it's doing, that's all that this is, a spiritual psyop is really just trying to undermine your trust in the Lord. Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And then in the midst of all the trials and temptations that you face, pray. Here's the, here's the model of Hezekiah's prayer that I want to just give to you in three quick points. Number one, powerful prayer is aware of God's power. You tell God, I know who you are. I know that you are God in creation. You are sovereign. You are Lord of all. There's no one like you. You can do all things. You tell God that. You, know, you let God know that you know who God is. Then you get honest about your problem. Here's what I feel. Here's what I'm going through. Here's my anxieties. Here's my struggles. This is who I am. And you know it and I know it and I need your help. And so I surrender to your grace. God, I pray that you fix this, change this, transform this. Maybe I need to change. Maybe it's not my circumstances that need to change. Maybe I need to change. What does Peter say? First Peter 5, uh, 6 to 7, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Don't leave one anxiety out. That's the, that's the meaning of the word all. Do you know what the meaning of the word all is in Greek? All. <laughs> Give God every single anxiety. What are you worried about right now? Give it to God. What, are you, what is it? Seriously, because he is not unable to help you and heal you. And the last thing that we learn and remember from the very swift wiping out of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, we learn what? God's resources are unlimited and God's deliverance is assured and he can do it like that. He can do it instantly. It doesn't take him years to undo the years of the devil's damage. (laughs) You can do it in two seconds. That's his power. 
that's his that's to his glory and to his praise and we rejoice in knowing that in all of our anxieties and troubles and trials and tribulations we rejoice knowing that in a moment god can transform anything amen I trust that this has encouraged you and helped you. So support the channel if you would through the Cash app or timhatchlive.com support. I'm getting my book geared up to get into your hands, Ending Emptiness, a book about Ecclesiastes, Solomon, and uh, Ernest Hemingway. I'm excited about that content. It is coming soon. Please don't ask when. I have no idea. I'm sorry. But uh, just like and subscribe and, you know, do the whole thing with the channel. That would be appreciated as well. Hey, a uh, bit of bad news. There's no deep end or deep dive next week. I have to take the, a week off. A uh, big thing happening in my life, so I have to take the week off. But I will be doing some reaction videos, and you want to tune in for those, which will be pre-recorded, and I hope to get those onto the channel as soon as possible. But other than that, I pray that you are aware now more than ever about the spiritual psyops you're going through, and that you pray and humble yourselves before God, because the victory is secured in Jesus' name. <laughs>